Good. How's everybody doing? All right. Good. I mean, like, yeah, right? Like, 2020 is not the best year ever. I get that. But, right, given the context, we're okay. Yeah. All right. I hope you guys on live stream are doing all right as well. Uh, if you have your Bible, please take it out uh, or turn it on. And uh, we're going eventually to Acts chapter 16 this morning. So you can go ahead and try to find that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts in your New Testament. Um, I'm sure you've noticed right about now, uh, in our culture these days, we are currently, let's just say, in a conversation about race, um, about racial justice, about systemic injustice, and all those questions and uh, things are, well, I guess it's, it's a continual conversation in American culture because of our history, uh, but certainly right now, um, it has, of course, reached a, a bit more of a fevered pitch, perhaps. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's electric, it's charged, all of that. People hunker down, take sides, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There's all that going on. Um, and, but this morning, what I want to do is, um, I guess now that I've said all that about the current cultural conversation, I'm going to reverse myself and say, you know, I wish that we could, and maybe this is an okay uh, uh, thought experiment, um, if we could just for a minute, for the next half hour or so, if we could, and again, you know, I realize, but if we could just kind of put that aside, all that is here and now today, put it aside, and let's enter back into this now ancient story that we are the direct heirs of, by the way. This history is our history. So we're going to go back to the book of Acts. There is a window, a vignette, in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul uh, that I think, and I, and I know that you agree, um, it, it carries this um, explosive, transformational power. Uh, and so what I'd like for us to do this morning is just try as best we can to enter back into this story, um, this moment, and, and really this, this vignette that we're going to study, and I'm going to try to make the case for this too, is, is you know, it's not just a one-off kind of thing that just kind of happened. This is actually emblematic of the ministry of the Apostle Paul in general, in general, the ministry of Christ, um, and ultimately emblematic of what the church actually is, that is, the Jesus revolution throughout history around the world, something essential to what the Jesus revolution actually is. So, kind of having said all that, um, here we go, let's, let's look at the text first, and then we'll see what to make of it. Acts chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. Uh, Paul went on also to Derby and to Lystra, uh, where there was a, a disciple named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Uh, he was well spoken of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and had him circumcised because of the Jews who were in those places places where Paul was about to go, uh, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. 
As they went from town to town, they delivered to them uh, for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. This is the moment in the book of Acts where we first meet Timothy, that is the Timothy, the Timothy that's known uh, from your New Testament, the, the New Testament books, letters of First and Second Timothy. This is that guy. Um, Timothy was younger than Paul by about 20 years or so, uh, we suppose, most scholars would suggest. We see here that Timothy is from uh, Lystra, and this is a place where Paul has already been in ministry, and you can go back and read uh, in the book of Acts about Paul's um, adventures in Lystra. Uh, this is the moment where Paul and Timothy, apparently, by all accounts, first encounter one another, and Timothy will become a long-term protege to Paul. Uh, we could say Timothy will become like the son that Paul never had. Um, and of course, Paul will write later, he'll write those two letters to Timothy as Timothy is serving uh, in ministry. And you have those in your New Testament, First and Second Timothy. Um, now, a little more context here. Um, Paul, this is the beginning. The book of Acts really kind of records the, the initial stages of his ministry. And he is going to invest his life um, into the announcing of the good news that Jesus is the world's true Lord. For the early church, if you wanted to boil it down to a three-word gospel, it's that. Jesus is Lord. That's the good news in the ancient church. Um, and simultaneously, as Paul is announcing this good news, he will call people to embody and to manifest this new normal, the new normal of the world as a result of the fact that Jesus is the Lord of the world here and now. What does the new normal look like? And Paul will continually call people to embody that reality here and now in advance of the full and final coming of the kingdom of God. Um, one day, Paul will say, one day um, God will put all things under Christ's feet fully and finally. And one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. One day, Christ will reign and be fully and finally revealed uh, as all in all, King of kings, Lord of lords, all of that. And in the meantime, here and now, Paul will say over and over again, uh, that we who have embraced the true Lord of all, we are now being called to manifest and embody this loving, healing reign of God ahead of time here and now, to live today as the people of the future. That, in essence, is kind of the logic of Paul's uh, teaching and ministry. And one of the central features of this future world, which is the new normal for us here and now, is the unity of people across all divisions. The unity of humanity across the divisions of race, ethnicity, gender, economics, whatever, one of the essential features of this new normal that we as people of the future, that Paul will invite us to live out or live into here and now, is this idea of boundary-crossing, border-ignoring, division-evaporating uh, norms. So, and this 
you know, in both Paul's ministry, his example, and in his writings, uh, Paul just refuses to give up on this vision. Now, for some, and you can read the book of Acts to kind of get the longer version of what I'm trying to compress, but uh, for some, this announcement from the Apostle Paul of unity, for some, it sounds like a threat, um, and it sounds uh, uh, something worthy of resistance. Um, for others, it sounds like freedom and relief and dignity. And of course, that distinction depends upon where, whether or not the status quo works for you, right? So if you quite like the current status quo of your time and place and where you stand in the overall social structure, uh, then you would tend to find Paul's message um, and its, its, its uh, sense of, of overturning and undoing and ignoring uh, dissolving social boundaries and hierarchies and such, you would, you would tend to find all of that uh, rather, rather threatening. But if, on the other hand, if you're a person who you find yourself on the outside or on the bottom or on the short end of the social stick, so to speak, um, if the status quo is painful for you, uh, you might find it burdensome or oppressive, then you would tend to hear Paul's message as liberating as um, like fresh, cool water, like give me more of that. Um, and if you're in this latter category, um, then you'll hear Paul's message and you'll be receptive to it and joyfully so. But if you're on the top of the totem pole, the top of the social ladder, then when you hear Paul's message, you're going to hear something dangerous and even threatening. And so in a lot of ways, when you read the book of Acts, this, this tension is what really kind of illuminates, I think, the inner logic, uh, the inner dynamic of Paul's life. Everywhere Paul goes, there's either a revival or a riot, uh, and sometimes both, right? Um, comfortable people don't riot over a nice sermon about a new form of personal, private spirituality that unloads most of its mustard in some future far-off disembodied reality. Comfortable people don't riot over that. But comfortable people riot over a message that actually threatens and even upends their quite comfortable standing in the society as they've come to know it. A, a message that actually calls their existence into question in its entirety. And that is what Paul's message did for many who encountered his ministry. Um, and the center of this revolutionary gospel call to unity was for Paul in his day. It was this unity in the classic social division that you encounter throughout the book of Acts and Paul's writings um, is this social division between Jews and Gentiles. And here Gentile just means non-Jewish uh, people. So Paul's going to say over and over, we are now one single family of God through love and loyalty to Jesus Christ. That's what he preaches about. That's what he writes about. That's what he lives for. That's what he ultimately died for, Paul did. Um, so, so that's the big picture of Paul's life and ministry. And with that context, we come into this moment here with Timothy. And look what this mentions about Timothy. Timothy's mother was Jewish, and his father was Greek. Read Gentile. <laughs> In other words, 
Timothy, in his very flesh, embodied the spiritual and social spirit-fueled transformation that Paul gave his life for, ultimately. Timothy embodies it biologically. Timothy is together Jew and Gentile. You know, for some people, Timothy was just a mixed-race kid with no real place in the world. He's not really one of us. He's not really one of them. Timothy is nowhere boy, you know. But for Paul, for the Jesus revolution, Timothy is the future. Uh, Timothy, no, Tim, Timothy, Timothy is not, in fact, nowhere boy. Quite to the contrary, Timothy is our destination. Timothy is where we're all going. Timothy is the physical, biological embodiment of the spirit-soaked society that God is uh, uh, working in the world to become. Timothy is what God is doing in the world through Christ. He's bringing all things into unity through Christ. See, by virtue of biological reality, Timothy is always in solidarity across social borders. Right? See, Timothy can't be anything other than that. Timothy is always unavoidably unified with people on both sides of perhaps the most divided social boundary of his day. That is the divide between Jews and Gentiles. Timothy is always constantly and unavoidably a living, breathing embodiment of the removal of that divide. For other folks, that particular social divide between Jews and Gentiles, uh, man, that thing, that may be hot and real and contested, emotionally charged, even the focus of debate and controversy and how it is that we must go about and precisely and unavoidably implement and make sure that divide exists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But for Timothy, that social divide doesn't even exist. It's not even real. In fact, it simply doesn't exist. Now, for those of us who were born of an apparent single ethnicity, and I say apparently because the geneticists will tell us that none of us are of a single ethnicity. We're all mixed-race kids uh, in one way or another. Um, but for those of us who at least present uh, as being of only one ethnicity, what Timothy embodies by virtue of biological reality, we are actually called to embody by choice. Everybody see that? So Timothy erases these boundaries by virtue of biology. And we're called by the Spirit of God to do so by choice. And by allegiance to our boundary-canceling Lord who died because ultimately because of his fierce and unapologetic compassion for people on every side of the social boundaries and divides. Now, back to Paul. There are times in Paul's writings 
and when he writes specifically letters to churches um, where he presses in on this issue in exactly these terms, the terms, in other words, that are centered on Christ. Um, look at this, Galatians chapter 3. He says, there is no longer Jew or Greek. All right, he's, he's saying what Timothy embodies. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Now, everybody, uh, this is a deceptively profound and transformational statement, and here's why. It's because, okay, just think about it like this. Categorization inevitably leads to hierarchy. So, so in other words, it doesn't matter what we're talking about in any arena of life. The moment we put items, anything, into categories, the very next moment we are irresistibly going to rank those groupings from top to bottom, from bottom to top. I mean, it's almost, it is inevitable. I don't care if you just got a brand new bag of Jelly Bellies and you jump them out all on the table, you know, and you put them all in groups, you know, like I'm going to put all the the licorice ones here, and I'm going to put all the cherry ones here, and I'm going to put them all in groups, right? As soon as you get done putting all those jelly bellies in those categories, the next thing that's going to happen, you're going to go, and these are my favorite. And, oh, and these, these are my second favorite. No, maybe, maybe these are my second favorite. I mean, these are, these are for sure my worst favorite, right? So, I mean, you see what I'm saying? Like, there's like this seamless connection between categorization and hierarchy. That's true in any area. Categorization leads to hierarchy and it's the same with jelly bellies and with human beings in social categories whenever you categorize people the next inevitable step is hierarchy and in social relationships hierarchy means what well it means the dominant group over the subdominant groups in harder or softer forms in more or less visible forms, but it always inevitably happens. It means the powerful over the weak. It means the rich over the poor. It means the haves over the have-nots. It means the overdogs over the underdogs. And so the genius here in this statement, if I can say it that way, um, is that Paul here by the Holy Spirit is actually uprooting and exposing the entire human enterprise of categorization. That much is clear. But to what end? To what effect? Well, again, once, once you have ended human categorization, then guess what you've done also by extension? You've eliminated the social hierarchies that oppress people. And that is what Paul, by the Spirit, is after. Here's another example from one of Paul's letters. Ephesians 2, for he, that's Christ, is our peace. In his flesh, he's made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. That's between various social groups. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, Jews and Gentiles, thus making peace. And he might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it, the cross. Now, listen to this, everybody. <laughs> that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two. This is 
This is enormous. What two humanities is he talking about? He might create one new humanity out of the two. Well, the two humanities are Jews and Gentiles, that, that most uh, visible and um, uh, electric social divide of Paul's day. He says that Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then later he says in the same passage uh, that the ultimate aim is to reconcile both groups, making peace, to put to death the hostility through the cross. Now this is, I mean, I'll just say, this is strange language for sure. What I'd like to do this morning is just take a few minutes and let's try to take a visual approach to this, what Paul is saying to us. I want to invite you for just a moment to the scene of the crucifixion. That's what Paul's talking about here. I want to invite you to Good Friday on Golgotha. Christ is being executed on a Roman cross. Let me ask a question and don't answer too quickly. Who put him there? And here's the answer. Christ was put on the cross by the collaboration of Jews and Gentiles, the Jewish religious establishment in coordination with the power of Rome. Now, these are two groups who truly, deeply despise one another. In Paul's words, hostility fits actually quite appropriately. At the cross, what we see is the mutual hostility among Jews and Gentiles converging together and becoming a murderous cocktail that was unleashed into the body of Jesus Christ. And what did he do in response? He loved, he forgave, he refused to retaliate. Jesus Christ, quite literally, we could say this, tore down the wall of mutual hostility in his own flesh. He endured the convergence of this mutual hostility as it became a murderous conduit unleashed upon his body. And his response was to love, to forgive, to refuse to retaliate all the way to the point of death. And so everybody, this is Paul trying to say, look, I'm not asking you to consider yourself as if you were united with those other people. No, I'm saying that you are united with those other people. See, the, the two groups that put Christ on the cross, they didn't see themselves as enacting their hostility, their mutual hostility toward one another into the body of Christ. No, they saw themselves pursuing a righteous cause. The Jewish establishment saw themselves defending the integrity of the scriptures of the law. The Roman political powers saw themselves as defending the beauty, the Pax Romana uh, of, of Rome itself. They saw themselves pursuing a righteous cause. But what Paul is saying, when you look and you see the reality of the cross, what you're seeing is the mutual hostility between Jews and Gentiles unleashed in the body of Christ. And they are exposed in that moment as naked hostility. Christ exposes not only the hostility in the human heart, though we attempt to mask it in our sense of righteousness, but Christ exposes not only that about ourselves, but he also exposes in that same moment, he exposes the true nature of God and what it means to be a true human being. And so Paul says, all that there is left to do, since this wall of hostility has been torn down, all that there is left to do is recognize and to see ourselves in Christ as being united in 
them. So Paul is saying, you are actually one. Whoever those other people are, or whoever the other is in your particular case, we are one. We have been brought together. Um, let's continue now with the story just a little bit um, back from where we left off, Acts chapter 16. The, the snippet that we get from Luke, um, he mentions that uh, Paul had Timothy circumcised. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, really, it's really kind of, a, you know, it just kind of goes by when you read it. But it's really actually a very big deal. I mean, after everything, like if you were sitting down, if we were just reading through the book of Acts, you would see that the entire whole, the whole controversy between Paul kind of on this vanguard of the ministry of, the, of, of Christ uh, and his, I don't know what you call it, little tension, little pushback from the, the Jewish um, Jesus community who are more inclined to honor the law and maintain circumcision among the people of God, all those, and Paul's saying, no, that's, that's not the direction we're going to go here. Uh, and, and so here we read when Paul brings Timothy into his entourage, um, Paul has Timothy circumcised. And this is, this is actually quite extraordinary. Um, and really, a revert, Paul is actually, in a way, at least on the surface, reverse, even reversing himself because when Paul had earlier recruited Titus into his entourage, Paul made a different decision. Here it is, Galatians 2, where Paul's talking about the instance with Titus. He says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. But because of false believers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy on, our, on the freedom we have in Christ so that they might enslave us, we did not submit to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might always remain with you. So with Timothy, yes, circumcision. With Titus, no. So what's going on here? Is Paul being inconsistent? Is Paul not even consistent with himself? And I want to suggest that the answer is right here in this story. And this is going to become relevant as we try to bring this thing in for a landing here in just a couple of minutes. Um, look what it says in Acts 16. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and had him circumcised because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his uh, father was a Greek. So look at what Luke is, is telling us, um, that these are actually two very different circumstances, two very different situations. With Titus, uh, Paul was going to the Jerusalem Jesus church, right? And so Paul pushes back and refuses uh, the, 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 the pressure to have uh, Titus conform to Jewish expectations because these are Jesus people who are still kind of holding on to the, to the law. And, and, of course, the, the law includes the mandate for circumcision, but Paul is saying no. But in Timothy's case, this is an outbound missionary movement where they're going to speak to unbelieving Jews. And so Paul says, yeah, in that case, then, we're going to do what's required to get on board so that we gain an entrance into the hearts and minds of our Jewish uh, uh, audience, I guess you'd say. And so here's an example of Paul fleshing out his thinking on this kind of thing, 1 Corinthians 9. He says, for though I'm free with respect to all, I've made myself a slave to all so that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews, which is really funny because like, Paul was a Jew, so that's kind of odd to say. But to those under the law, I became 
as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I, uh, uh, to those outside the law that I might win uh, those under the law. To the weak I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. So again, what brings harmony to what, what seems like on the surface inconsistency in Paul's ministry, what brings harmony is the motivation question, not the, not the ironed out, this is what you do, this is how you do it in every instance. What brings harmony to it is what's the goal? What's the motivation? What is the telos? Where are we aiming? And again, for Paul, and when, we say, when I say that Paul's aim is always missional, I need to be very careful and remind, go back to what I said earlier, that Paul's aim is to bring people into a new um, uh, healed and healing society, transformed and transformational society. Paul is not simply seeking spiritual conversions, although yes, but not just that. He's seeking to bring people into a new community, what Martin Luther King Jr. would later call the beloved community. That's what Paul's uh, motive and motivation is. And so when you see what looks like on the surface something inconsistent, um, what's actually at, at, the, at the core, um, it is actually consistent. Here's, I said all that to say this. What Paul is doing, and don't get me wrong, let me give me a time to explain this. What Paul is doing is improvising. He is. But when I say improvising, that's it, that's, that's it, uh, to say that Paul is imp improvising, um, it, 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 I don't mean what, what you might think that I mean. It's not to say that, because sometimes when we, when we use some, a concept or a word like improvising, we think, well, just making it up as he goes. But that's not what I mean. Let's take, let's take a musical setting, a musician who is improvising. Um, for a musician to improvise, it's not accurate to say that that musician is just making up something, playing in an ad-lib, totally random way. Actually, for a musician to improvise, the musician really needs to understand a whole lot about the musical context, the, te the tempo, the key signature, the feel, the tone of the song, and having understanding all of that, then that musician begins to create something new, which is an extension of what already is in the art that's already happening, in the song that's already happening. Make sense? So improvisation in its truest form is not just making something up as you go. No, it's respecting the context. It's respecting, in the case of music, it's respecting the, the flow of the song that already is. And now that we have all that, now, yeah, now we're going to create something fresh and something new, but it's going to be a continued expression of the song that already is, right? Same thing with an actor. If an actor is going to improvise, uh, that actor is not free to just make up style and tone and character and story. No, for an actor to improvise, the actor needs to understand the play. What's the plot? What's the storyline? What's the style of storytelling that's already been given to us by the writer? And now that I know all that and understand all that and respect all that, now I can create something fresh and in the moment, but it's going to be an improvisation that respects the story that already is and where it's going. Make sense? So when I say Paul is improvising, I mean it in that sense. Paul understands what God is doing through Christ in history, understands what God has done, and he understands the telos and the story of where this is going. And with that in mind, he is, yes, very much improvising 
and making it up in that sense, but not just creating out of thin air. See, so he gets that and he knows that. And I said all that to say, everybody, we're being called to do much the same thing today, here and now, in our context, in our culture. We're being called um, to um, be sensitive to, on the one hand, the kingdom of God, the, the great storyline that God, what God has done and is doing in the world in Christ and our current cultural moment to take all that into consideration and then very much improvise and work out what it means to be this people who are the boundary erasing border crossing people of God energized and animated by the spirit and so with that I just want to encourage you to go for it to try it to do stuff to get out of the religious cocoon to don't no, don't allow don't allow any kind of um, ideological trappings any kind you know the the whole partisan thing in our culture right now is so confining, among, among other things, it's so confining, it just saps the creativity right out of us. And just instead, be Jesus' people, live by the Spirit and embody this kind of boundary-crossing, unity-embracing soul. That's who we are. That's what we're called to be. Now, back to Timothy. I just want to say, and you get this, but just to say it overtly, that following Jesus always happens in the flesh. <laughs> there is no other way to follow Jesus except in our body, right? Uh, that's the only way you can follow Jesus, heart and soul, yes. But ultimately and necessarily, we follow Jesus in and with our bodies, that's how we follow this flesh of ours. Now, again, look at the, the story that Luke gives us here in the book of Acts. Um, he focuses entirely in the second half of the book of Acts on the life of the Apostle Paul. Um, and that's rightly so. But what happened here was also Timothy's choice in this particular moment, right? That story is told with the focus on Paul. But what happens in this story, as we're giving it, is Timothy's choice as well. This, this quick, brief account tells us about something that happened to Timothy. And without sliding into an area that would be really embarrassing, I just want us to take a moment and look at this from Timothy's perspective for a minute. So Timothy, this act, as a, at least a young adult, um, this is neither a simple matter of pre-trip details to take care of, <laughs> nor is this an act of traditional Jewish observance for him, um, for people who want to be considered to be legitimately a part of the people of God. That's not what Timothy underwent. For Timothy, this is something that happened to him, to his body, outside of either of those two categories. This is far too serious of a matter to be considered a minor pre-trip detail to take care of. And for Timothy, 
this is no longer thought to be an essential act of worship and or membership in the family of God. For Timothy, it's neither one of those. And so what was it for Timothy? What, you know what I mean? Like what, 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 was, what was the motivation? What was the, how did he make sense of this? Well, let me just say it this way. With this detail that we're told about Timothy, you could say it like this. Timothy is enacting with his body the love uh, for the people that God is sending him to. He's doing so in the one and only way that discipleship ever and always demands. He's loving these people with his flesh. He's loving them in advance with his own body. And so, again, I said all that to say that, guess what? We, too, are called to love people in the flesh. That's the only way discipleship happens with our bodies. And sometimes it's costly. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it hurts. That's how we love people by being with them in the flesh. Sometimes it costs us something. Um, I'm all about speaking out. I'm all about words. I say absolutely use your words. Use your social media feed. Use words to speak life and to bring the kingdom. No doubt about it. But in the end, everybody, on some level, some way, somehow, following Jesus is done in the flesh. Culture says that our flesh is all about being beautiful, impressing other people by projecting an appealing image. But following Jesus says that our flesh, our bodies, are devoted to serving those to whom God is sending us and about ultimately laying down our flesh in humble, loving service toward others. So there's that in this story. And, and again, that is subversive to our current culture. Basically, our current culture says that the purpose of my flesh is for it to be as comfortable as I can possibly make it. You know, And there's something subversive in this story and in the example of Timothy. Um, and, and the final observation here before we pray and conclude um, is this. I just want to say what we all know um, is that Timothy was born out of forbidden love. In their culture, um, the love between Timothy's mother and father was forbidden. It was scandalized, shamed, forbidden, whatever word you want to, whatever word you use. Jews were forbidden from marrying non-Jews. But Timothy's mother and father, and we don't know much about their history, but they loved each other nevertheless. And Timothy was the fruit born of that love. So what does that suggest? Well, I just want to say once again that here yet again, Timothy is the living embodiment of Paul's message. 
that God's love is spilling over and crossing over all boundaries, all borders in and through Jesus Christ. In fact, through Christ, we now see that God's love knows no boundaries. It respects no boundaries. It observes no boundaries. So where do we go with that? Well, I just want to say at a minimum that you have permission to love those whom others would forbid you from loving. Okay? Um, you have permission to love the unlovable. You have permission to love the forbidden people. Indeed, I just want to say you are commissioned to love the forbidden people. You know, here we are in the Deep South, and I grew up in this area, um, in this region. And what I know, I'll say from observation and experience, some of you have a family of origin who expects you to despise people of different races. They expect you to look down upon people of a different ethnicity. And this is me standing in your life and saying, no, 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 you are commissioned to love across all boundaries, across all borders. There are no forbidden people, not for you. We're all one in Christ. So now the last, last thing. Um, you may feel like, just as I say all that, um, you may feel like a forbidden person. You may feel, for one reason or another, um, that you're outside of God's love, God's embrace. I mean, you were here with us over live stream for whatever reason. Maybe it's some of the issues we've talked about, that you've been looked down upon because of your race or your background or economics or whatever it might be. Um, or maybe you may feel like a forbidden person outside the reach of God's love because you feel like you've made too many mistakes on too far. Too many broken promises, too many failed tries. And so now you may feel like one of the forbidden people. And again, I say to you, this one true God, he, that he knows no such thing. There are no forbidden people. No such thing as forbidden love. The only kind of love that this God knows is a boundary-crossing, boundary-ignoring love. That's who this God is. He has left us only one choice, and that is to love him back. And he's going to keep on chasing you, keep on chasing me until we do. Amen? Let's pray.